I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome everyone to another edition of the Pensburg Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Behanna, joined as always with Hooks Orpic himself, Jim Rixner. Jim, how are you doing? Doing great. Welcome everybody. Episode 34 of the pod. And Garrett, who is your favorite Pittsburgh Penguin number 34 of all time? You know, we've uh, we've we've hit a bit of a rough patch over the last couple of weeks. Not not a lot of uh, good numbers to go on when, when looking back in Penguin history. Um, let's see here. I think Garth Snow was one former, former, uh, goaltender and general manager of the New York Islanders. But I think for me, I'm going to go with Bobby Farnham. Do you remember the Bobby Farnham right. craze like four or five years ago when everyone was like, I think he needs to be in the bottom six. I think he's a good mix of speed and tenacity and grit. I think it was like in that grit phase when everyone was like, I think the Penguins need a little bit of an enforcer in their bottom six to protect Crosby and Malkin. Uh, That thought process really still hasn't gone away. But I'm going to go with Bobby Farnham for my number 34 greatest of all time Pittsburgh Penguin. How about you? Yeah, there's not much to pick from here. Bobby Farnham was a wild man, that's for sure. Um, I guess I'll, I'll go with a guy who's not really known for playing with the Penguins so much as coaching later on. In his days, so I'll go with Ted Nolan, who okay. wore number thirty-four back in the day and was a longtime Buffalo Sabres coach. So th- that gets us through that one. Hopefully, you know. Hopefully, there's a light at the end of the tunnel over the next couple of weeks. I haven't looked ahead. Uh, I typically don't look at jersey numbers until you send them to me before the se- before the show. So hopefully, you know, we, we have some uh, better names to reflect on and reminisce about in the coming weeks ahead. But Jim, we have a little bit of news to get to since our last episode of the Pensbrook podcast. We are well into the month of February. The bye week and the All Star Game are officially in the rearview mirror as we gear towards. 
the NHL's trading deadline coming up in a couple of weeks' time. But before that, we have a couple of games to recap since the Penguins got back into action. Uh, games against divisional rivals like we talked about last week. Uh, the Penguins were getting ready to go up against what looked to be a very tough stretch in their schedule. And the games that we're going to talk about are just so happen to be four or three wins against the Philadelphia Flyers and the Washington Capitals. The first game against the Philadelphia Flyers, like I said, a four to three overtime win. Uh, Jim, I think looking at this game, uh, the things that stand out to me are number one, uh, really nice performances from Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Chris Letang. Both Crosby and Malkin registering uh, three-point efforts, respectively, each against the Philadelphia Flyers. The Penguins scoring uh, three goals in the second period before uh, heading into the third period of this contest with a 3-2 lead. The Philadelphia Flyers uh, tie the game in the third period really not a whole much, a whole lot to go on other than that three goal outburst the Penguins had. The Penguin, uh, the Flyers, uh, rather, find momentum early in the third period to tie the game at three. The Penguins go into overtime, and who else but the captain, Sidney Crosby, to put an exclamation point, get the overtime game winner for the Penguins to win four to three. Certainly, starting off the bye week, out, coming out of the bye week on the right foot, and really washing that nasty taste of the 3 nothing shutout of the previous game out of their mouths. Uh, Jim, anything else that caught your interest when looking at the Penguins versus the Flyers? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned at the end there to break the shutout from their last game heading into the bi-week All-Star break. And then that first period, the Penguins also didn't score. And I was kind of even thinking, like, oh, my goodness. Like, is, is this just adding up, like, with no Jake Gensel? Is, is it really coming home to to roost that they're having so much trouble scoring goals against the Flyers going four straight periods without scoring. And like you said, just an outburst in the second period, which they really needed. They got a couple of power play goals. Malkin scored, Russ scored, Latang scored, and then Crosby was there in overtime. So yeah, it was, I think it was really important to come out of the break and get the win against, against obviously the Flyers, the big rival team. So I think, I, you know, the Penguins kind of in the third period were hanging on for dear life, and it, it's a shame they blew that lead, even though they ended up winning. But I guess at the end of the day, you'll be happy to take the win and move on. That you will. And it's exactly what the Penguins did in their following game as well, heading uh, to the nation's capital to take on the Washington Capitals. And, uh, I, I, Jim, I think the, the, the calling card for this game when looking at it was, uh, at least in my opinion, getting the contributions, the goals from a lot of depth players. I'm looking at the score sheet now. You have a goal from Brandon Tanev, a goal from Dominic Simone, a goal from Sam Lafferty, who was recently recalled, and uh, a goal from Patrick Hornquist. So, you know, uh, Sidney Crosby registered an assist, um, but really... When looking at the score sheet, at least, uh, the, the stars were in large part kept off of the score sheet. Uh, I think the tempo of this game, I, I, I got the sense that this was a very back-and-forth game. And really, as the game progressed, you, you kind of got the feeling that this back-and-forth um, almost kind of felt like a playoff game to me. A sec like a, a traditional you know, second-round matchup between these two teams. The Penguins did, by the middle of the second period, go out to a what was a 3-1 to one lead. Uh, the, the Capitals would slowly claw their way back. And by the end of the game, Jim, I think you could kind of tell 
the Penguins were getting a little bit more gassed, and you could kind of tell they were running out of energy by the game's end. Uh, the Capitals really looked like the more physically dominant and aggressive team, which kind of wore the Penguins down. Uh, that was kind of concerning to me, um, you know, w- watching them ge- get beat rather... Um, rather consistently, I guess, is the word I'm looking for because of uh, the Capitals' forecheck. But uh, a win's a win, a 4-3 win in the nation's capital against the top team in the Metropolitan Division. You'll take the two points wherever you can get them. Uh, Jim, that was my analysis for the 4-3 victory over the Washington Capitals. Is there anything that you wanted to add from what you saw? You nailed it, calling it, saying it was like a playoff game. I mean, that that basically was... It was the first Penguins-Caps game of the year, and, you know, those teams always get up to play each other, and all four of the Penguins-Capitals games this season are all in February, March, and they're all weekend games on NBC in the afternoon, so they're special games, there's no doubt about it, even though it's a long season, certain games stand out, and, you know, the Penguins measure themselves against the Capitals and vice versa, they're number one and two in the division, maybe even they might end up one and two in total points in the East, who knows, they're they're definitely two of the strongest teams in the East, and like you mentioned, it, it was a depth effort to get Sam Lafferty scoring a goal, to get Dominic Simone chipping in, to have Brandon Tanev score what ended up being a really big goal late. So, um, yeah, that that's a strength of the, of the Penguins is that it doesn't have to be. We talked about the Philly game where it was obviously Malkin and Crosby were shining and were two of the best players on the ice. Here, while I think they were good, they kind of get canceled out a little bit with the Ovechkins and the Backstroms and the Kuznetsovs. So when it comes down to Penguins Capitals, it's oftentimes whose third line is playing better. Like if you remember back a few years ago in the playoffs when Nick Benino would have a great series and would help win. And then when the Caps beat the Penguins, unfortunately, Lars Eller was really outstanding and he was great on Sunday scoring two goals himself. So I think that depth is really is really what stands out. And that's what's going to have to shine kind of later in the season. And as as games get deeper and it's so competitive and you know the stars are gonna are gonna come through and do what they do. It's just a matter of which team's lower line players come through. And Brandon Tanev scoring late in the third period was the perfect example of that, and that stood as a game winner. And uh, Jim, you know, like we had mentioned last week, and I had mentioned at the start of the show here, uh, it really isn't going to get much easier for the Penguins as they kick off a, another uh, Florida swing, taking on the Tampa Bay Lightning later tonight, uh, a trip with against the Florida Panthers. On uh, February 8th, then they get the Tampa Bay Lightning again on Tuesday, February 11th. And uh, the reason I bring that up is, well, because uh, segueing into our next segment, there is a player that I want to focus on that will very likely be called upon in one of these three, if not more, uh, contests that the Penguins have going forward. That player is Matt Murray. And uh, I I want to talk about Matt Murray, and I know I've talked about him quite a bit uh, just uh, personally, uh, Matt Murray, the, the player is, is, I guess, and his play is a hill that I'm willing to die on. And it's obviously uh, a little bit of a touchy subject for many Penguins fans. But uh, speaking of uh, Matt Murray, he was the goaltender of record in the last game against the Washington Capitals, getting the win, uh, making um, making 32 saves or 29 saves on uh, 32 shots against excuse me, for a 906 save percentage. Uh, But, Jim, a lot has been made about Matt Murray this season, and and rightfully so. I mean, he he basically lost the the starting job to eventual all-star Tristan Jari, but 
he's won his last five contact contests dating back to January 4th with a save percentage no lower than 903. And you may think 903 isn't an overly impressive save percentage, but considering the struggles Matt Murray had early on in the season, that 903 save percentage came in, in the game against the Colorado Avalanche on January 10th. Um, Matt Murray is now 16, six and zero with a 285 goals against and a 900 save percentage. Uh, again, not really incredibly flashy statistics in terms of goals against and save percentage, but still, it, it's a rebound that it's worth talking about now because let's let's look at Tristan Jari because Tristan Jari really, for all the success he had heading into the All-Star break, he's he really hasn't been you know on his A game as well uh, recently either. I don't have his stats in front of me in particular. Uh, I wanted to dedicate this segment mainly to Matt Murray's rebound. Jim, uh, when looking at Matt Murray now, and I'm not saying Matt Murray is is all of a sudden firmly entrenched as the number one at this point moving forward, and I'm also not saying that Tristan Jari has uh, lost all of his starting privileges based on you know a little bit of a dip in play recently, but with this seemingly return to form for Matt Murray, winning his last five contests, how important is it? Do you think? For Matt Murray to, it looks like he's regained confidence. I mean, winning his last five contests, they're, they're they're going to need him with this difficult stretch of schedule, like we've talked about. And the more I think about it, Jim, the more I think that as we get closer and closer to the playoffs, I think I think Mike Sullivan is going to go with the netminder who's been there before and won championships before. I think Mike Sullivan just might go with Matt Murray. Now, that remains to be seen. A lot is going to be played out over the next two months heading into the postseason. But, Jim, I'll give the floor to you. Does does it look like Matt Murray has regained his form? Uh, and does it look like, you know, for, at least for the foreseeable future, we can finally rely on Matt Murray once again? We'll have to see... Um... It looked like based on practice on Wednesday that they might go with Murray again tonight on Thursday against Tampa. I guess we'll have to see how that goes. But there's definitely some encouraging signs coming out of Murray's recent performances. He was really good in that game against Washington on Sunday, like we talked about. The game before that, he played against Boston Bruins and made 35 saves on 38 shots. So they're a really good team, too. So I think you're seeing, like you were saying, that Murray's rounding into form a little bit more. He's certainly playing a lot better than he was in November by any metric or eye test or whatever you want to see. He's he's looking more confident and comfortable in the net, and I think he's playing more on his angles and more to his strengths, which is why he's making more saves now these days. But I, I don't know if it's going to be hard and fast that they're going to go with him even like they did last year when basically from about this time of year in early February to the end of April, I think Murray started every game except for two or three, and that was only because of back-to-back situations. I don't know if they're going to ride him that hard again, just because around the league you're seeing a lot more goalie timeshares, whether it's the Boston Bruins with Yaroslav Halak and Tuka Rask in Washington. They have Simpsonos playing a lot for Braden Holtby. You really don't see that number one goalie these days anymore that plays 60, 70 games like back in the day when they used to have just that one franchise goalie that did everything. So I, I kind of see that that's where the pens will go, especially for as long as Murray and Jari both to a different degree are winning hockey games and providing them with the level that they think is good enough to win. Uh, Jari's stats have fallen off a little, but at the same time, he's 
done enough to win some games, and he was good late too against uh, the Philadelphia Flyers on Friday night, his last game that he played. He was he was good. So I think it's the best of both worlds and the best situation possible for the Pens now because they have two guys that they can rely on and trust in and move forward with, and I think they're going to use both of them pretty regularly here down the stretch as we go along. That's a really interesting point you brought up, Jim, and it's something that when I was talking, uh, introducing the segment regarding Murray, that's something that I didn't even think about. It seems like you're right. Uh, the, the the days of writing writing your, your number one netminder for 65, 70-plus games, at, at least for now, it looks like it's in the past, and the more I think about it, the, the, the more you're right that um, this, this, this tandem, the, 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 the dual goaltender strategy that a lot of teams seem to be employing, the Penguins being one of them, uh, you know, it could be another recipe for success. And the, also, the more I thought about it while you were making your point there, the, the more I thought about, well, they, they, they kind of already did the same thing with uh, Matt Murray and Marc-Andre Fleury d- towards uh, Marc-Andre Fleury's uh, end of his tenure in Pittsburgh here. Um, it, it's just funny to me, Jim, how crazy... Um, you know how crazy circumstances change. Uh, your 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 team needs change over the course of of, of a calendar year. Um, just thinking back to the the start of last season, or even the start of this season. You know trade rumors swirling around um, Tristan Jari's future with the Penguins organization. The Penguins were trying to trade Tristan Jari, including him in uh, trade packages for his sake, you know, just trying to get him out of the organization to give him, you know, more regular playing time because at the time he probably wasn't going to find it in front of uh, Matt Murray and Casey DeSmith. Now Casey DeSmith being buried in Wilkes-Barre and Tristan Jari going on this incredible all-star run this season. It really is a fascinating turn of events when you look at it. And the more I think about it, the more I think Jim Rutherford deserves credit for keeping uh, Tristan Jari on uh, on this roster and, and not biting that bullet too quickly, you know, having faith that having three competent netminders would serve a purpose uh, if injury came about or if rough stretches of play, uh, like we've seen with Matt Murray this season, they've come about having to rely on Tristan Jari and who knows, even possibly Casey DeSmith somewhere down the line uh, this season, maybe next season. Um, but it really is a testament to... to to Jim Rutherford's um, moxie, I'll say, as a general manager for not letting go of Tristan Jari and seeing what he's done over the course of a calendar year. For sure, because the one thing we know about Jim Rutherford is he loves his goalie depth, and he kept uh, Marc-Andre Fleury and Matt Murray together as his two netminders for as long as possible when a lot of people noted, rightly so, that both were starting caliber goalies and he rode that for as long as it carried him, and I think he'll do the same here with with Murray and Jerry. I mean, as long if you got two good goalies, that gives you more options. Because um, to your point, like you mentioned with the Murray and Flurry thing, those guys seem to get injuries at conflicting times, so that kind of worked itself out for a while. And I guess that's that might be a factor that could come into play down the stretch here. It's it's a little weird on February fifth or sixth not knowing at this point, if if it's game one of the playoffs here next week, which goalie's starting? I don't think you can definitively say one way or the other, and I don't know if the Penguins even know right now which goalie they're going to go with. Maybe they will give Murray more chances in these last 30 games to reestablish himself as that go-to guy, since they know he has played very, very well in the playoffs in the past. 
maybe they're just comfortable enough with what Jerry's done that he's going to get the opportunity to play some games. And, you know, the I think the door is just as wide open for him, given his great season, this all-star season, like you pointed out. So it's it's unusual. I, I think it's it's a little unsettled, but that doesn't make it unsettling that you don't know what way it's going to go because the Pens have been fortunate this year. They've gotten some good goaltending at times from each different player. So... I, I mean, as long as you you have that and you have that confidence in those guys, um, it's weird now that especially for having Flurry as a franchise goalie for like 15 years, you just always knew as a constant it was going to be him in the net and him playing. And now, I guess from game to game, it's going to be hard to predict which way Mike Sullivan goes because even this past couple of weeks, Murray would have a great game and then he wouldn't play the next game or kind of vice versa for Jari. So I guess he's going to have to figure out what he wants to do or what direction he's going to go. And it's going to be fascinating to see how the Pens play this or if, or if it kind of decides itself if one guy really steps up or one guy drops off, then sometimes that decision kind of makes it makes it clearer for itself. Yeah, like you said, Jim, I completely agree with you. As we head into the the the, the meat and potatoes, you know, towards the end of the NHL regular season, um, like you said, it, it's it's unsettled. It's not unsettling. I think it's it's a problem, but I think for Mike Sullivan, it's a good problem to have. You know, you want to have these options in net. Who you know, maybe he does ride the hot hand now and again. There, there it's so there's so many factors that could come into play between now and the middle of April when playoffs begin. And it's certainly now, you know, now that we know, now that we know Matt Murray has rebounded over his last five to six games and Tristan Jari has put up the stats that he has throughout the season. It's definitely going to be an interesting storyline to follow towards the conclusion of the regular season and into the postseason. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. But, uh, Jim, we're going to flip the script. We're going to head into our mailbag segment now uh, for first-time listeners, long-time listeners who are interested in participating in our weekly mailbag segment. You can do so by following the Pensburg Podcast Twitter account at Pensburg Pod. Every Tuesday, I will put out a tweet from the podcast Twitter account asking for your participation in this mailbag segment. Remember, no question, nothing like that is off limits. We love getting all sorts of participation from... Any sort of any sort of listener, any sort of random question that pops into your head, and we have a couple of really awkward, uh, at least one question I know that that is really uh, out of left field that I think we'll have fun answering. Um, but Jim, you'll get first crack at this week's mailbag segment, like you always do, with longtime listener and question asker Cole Delvecchio is back. Uh, what are some realistic rules that you would like to see added to the game, and what crazy Never going to happen role would you like to see? All right. Well, what popped in my head for the crazy never going to happen rule is I would just go no offsides during the three-on-three overtime period. What do you think about that, Garrett? Uh, no offsides? Is that what you said? No offsides yep. for the three? Okay. Um, my my um, 
I, yeah, th- yeah, that, that, I, that, I could see that as a realistic rule. Um, I don't think it's that realistic, but I mean, three on three is so wide open, and sometimes the they just like play it back, and I, I don't see the need. Like, I, I would just like it's it's barely NHL hockey at that point, so I would just see, go full wide open. See, that's the thing because I, when when I got this question and I was thinking about it, realistically, the first thing that popped into my head was it, it has to be something pertaining to three on three overtime, three on three hockey. Um, what realistic rule? I'm trying to think. Um, mm, I don't know. I, I, I am stumped. Yeah. Uh, one, I think the NHL general managers have debated a little. I don't know how much traction this has, but I know it's come up a little. Is maybe, um, you know, a two-minute minor power penalty if someone scores, the penalty ends, and it gets back to five-on-five. Five. I saw them have a little debate on maybe – making it like a five-minute major where the player is going to stay in the box for the oh, full wow. two minutes. So it's basically like unlimited scoring on the power play for two minutes wow. on that. Like, So that would be more advantageous if you have a power play. I don't sure. know if they actually would pull the trigger on that, but I, I think that would be a fun rule change to kind of reward skill and and stuff like that. Crazier, uh, crazier never going to happen rule for me. Um <laughs> let's make let's make uh, all, all uh, future playoff hockey three on three. The games would probably end in, in a much quicker fashion, uh, but and the scoring chances would be through the roof. But I, I just love three on three so much. I think extending it, maybe extending the overtime period to for more for a more realistic rule, extending overtime to. 10 minutes maybe in the regular season or continuous three on three overtime and completely eliminating the shootout. Uh, I know a lot of people who have gripes with the shootout. Uh, Jim, I don't know if you're one of them. You know, I, I think a lot of people oh. just call it a skills competition at that point to determine who, right. you know, who, who gets that extra point. I think you're right. That could be realistic, especially just maybe a 10 minute three on three session. I know they want to keep the games as short as possible, but it really seems like those games, uh, the three-on-three ends pretty quickly anyways, and I think if teams knew they had 10 minutes too and they were really trying to wrap it up, that, that would emphasize you know, going for a goal and, and getting that out of the way. I think that would be a good rule and probably something they might consider too. Sure. All right, our next question comes to us from Commander Kern, and this is a really good one. We're asked, in the cinematic cl- classic Sudden Death, who would you recast as Jean-Claude Van Damme's character Darren McCord? And would you still let Iceberg kill people? Jim, I have to be completely honest with you. I have oh. not I I have not seen no. oh, oh my I have not seen Sudden Death. Well this probably came I, out when you were like three or four years old. I, I don't I I don't know the release date. I might not have even been born yet when Sudden Death came out. I think you were. I think it was like early nineties, probably like ninety three or ninety four if I had to guess. I know it's like it's like a cult classic, especially here in the Pittsburgh region, for obvious reasons. I haven't seen Sudden Death. I know some of the things that go on throughout the movie, but I can't speak to it really, like on an expert basis, to see who would I would recast as Jean Claude Van Damme. So I think the floor is yours, totally for this question. I can't speak too much to it. Okay, well, as you alluded to, yeah, it's kind of a cult classic. It wasn't wasn't a huge plot, but uh, John Claude Van Damme, surprise, surprise, plays a French Canadian fireman in Pittsburgh, and he he was the fire marshal at the Civic Arena during a hockey game, and then you have terrorists getting involved with the vice president, 
and Jean-Claude Van Damme basically has to save the day. So I, I think you probably knew that. That's a ba- basically the synopsis of the movie. So I'm not going to go with a French-Canadian like Jean-Claude Van Damme. But the first thing that popped in my head, and I thought this was good because he kind of is an action star now. And I would get John Cena to play Jean-Claude Van Damme because he's kind of <laughs> – I can kind of just see him as kind of like – the goofy fire marshal that has to save the day and that gets thrust unknowingly into a hostage situation with the vice president. Well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go along with you and I'm just going to say John Cena would be a, a fantastic recasting for Jean-Claude right. Van Damme. an action star. And I mean, we, this, this probably doesn't have the budget for the rock or somebody like no. that. So. Yeah. I mean, John Cena's kind of, you know, he's in the new fast and furious. So I guess he's coming up in the world. All right. Well, we'll make this next question uh, a little bit more um, on par for the both of us, I guess. Uh, Jonathan Jackson is is back, with, and he asks, the Penguins are looking good for the playoffs. The playoffs Deep like the old Stanley Cup squads, nice depth at D and goalie. With Dumo and Schultz coming back, uh, is there any, any more recent news on a top six winger acquisition with Galchenyuk going the other way uh, or both? Bukestad, yeah, Bukestad and Galchenyuk going the other way, or both. Yeah, maybe we should try to get another guest on, because the trade deadline is only two and a half weeks away. It's Monday, February February 24th, so that is quickly approaching. Obviously, we'll have to see. It, it doesn't look like there's a lot of trade activity, at least right now, in the NHL, because a lot of teams still think they're in it, whether or not sure. they are or not. You know, a lot of people probably shouldn't think they're in it that, that do. So I guess we'll see. I know Josh Yowie on The Athletic had a recent article that said what has been said for a while now. That is that Alex Galchenyuk is the most likely player on the roster to be traded in the next two weeks. And I could see that happening. Um, I don't see Nick Bukestad getting traded really at all. I think the Penguins are comfortable with him getting him back, getting him healthy, and keeping that strength down the middle at the center position. So I think he'll stay. Justin Schultz as well. Like, you don't want to trade Dustin Schultz because then that puts Chad Ruedel back in the lineup. And we've seen Chris Letang get hurt at times. And that right side of the defense would just be a mess if anything happened to Letang or John Marino down the stretch if you didn't have Justin Schultz. So I wouldn't do that either. Um, I think the best bet is to try to find something you can get for the first line or the second line, maybe using the 2020 first round pick to try to get a rental player, maybe you know, some kind of winger with term if possible at all. So that that's what I would really look for still for the Penguins to do is, you know, they, they like their team right now. They have a good team. They have a good chemistry mix going. So I don't see them making a lot of sweeping changes of trading a couple guys out and bringing a couple guys in. Like, I think they're just going to try to get that one forward that they're missing to really replace Jake Gensel and go from there. All right. Uh, Adam Clare asked, if Crosby and Mario played together both in their primes, who would you play at wing or who would play wing? This is a fascinating question. Jim, you, you might have to help me with this. I don't think, um, I really don't think at any point in his career, Mario played wing. I could be mistaken. You yeah, obviously. Yeah, he, played a, he played quite a bit of it towards the very end. Okay. Because okay. he had a bad back and bad hip, but this says if he's in his prime. I feel like I don't know what the what the the proper reasoning would be. I I just feel like Mario 
is the quintessential center, Pittsburgh Penguins center in his prime. I feel like Crosby, Crosby doesn't like to say he's known for his goal scoring. He's more, he, he likes to say he's more known for a well-rounded 200 foot game. Um, I guess I'll put Crosby on the wing and I'll, I'd keep Mario at center for no other reason than, well, I, I don't really don't have a, a, a big explanation for it. I, I just, I feel like, I feel like that's what would happen. Mario keeping the center position and Crosby moving over. I, I, I that's, that, that's the best I could go for Jim. Do you have any like scientific or any stat based data to, to try and see uh, what this fantasy line would look like. Yeah, it's tough since they are both such great natural centers. And when I was reading over this, I was like, well, they had Crosby and Malkin together in their primes and they just kept them on separate lines. So I think yeah. that's what would happen. But that's a cop-out answer. And But my inclination was to go the opposite of you, believe it or not. It's it's not easy to put Sidney Crosby on the on or no, to put Mary Lemieux on the wing. But that's what I would do because, like you mentioned, uh, I like Crosby as a 200-foot player a little better. I think he would be more responsible defensively. And uh, Lemieux in his prime would be a guy who could stretch the defenses with his skating. So I think if he was kind of like out more in space as a winger, had less defensive responsibilities, that he would get more breakaways and be up the ice more. So I don't know. Like I, I don't like the thought of Lemieux on the wing, but... I think it kind of fits his style and Crosby's style a little better. But, you know, if I had the choice, I would just put him on separate lines at center. <laughs> but <laughs> that's too you easy, know, I guess. Yeah, you can't, you can't go wrong. I mean, when Crosby and Malkin have been paired together, you know, in the in the brief time under the Sullivan era and the, the Dan Bilesma era, Crosby was always playing center, it seemed like, and Malkin Correct, was yeah. always on the wing. So... You know, maybe um, I don't know. Maybe Mario would be on the wing. Who, who knows? Um, but you know, I, I, one I like. Thing the... I know is I wouldn't want to tell either of those guys in their prime that they were <laughs> playing wing and, and not center because I remember it's it still kind of laughed about that when Ed Olchek made Crosby play wing as a rookie. He was not very happy about that. I feel like centers they don't have that diva reputation that like a wide receiver in football would, but. That that story just continues to confirm my at least my personal thought process that centers. I mean, maybe it's because it's why you're called a centerman, but you know, liking to be in the center, you know, centering, anchoring that line, being in the center of all the action, basically, yeah. it just you know, it 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 just feels like centermen should be you know, that anchor of whatever line they're on. If, does, that, does that make sense, Jim? I yeah, don't know perfect, if whatever I just... Perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I buy that all day long. Yeah. All right, Jim. Uh, our last question comes from the account that we, over the last couple of weeks, we still really don't have a solid pronunciation for. I, I'm going to go with sugar. Sugar. Once again, sugar. Uh, why isn't Yuso Ricola trusted to kill penalties? And why does Sullivan seem to prefer... Ruidal or another right-handed defenseman playing on their offside over having Ricola in the lineup. That's really driving people crazy across the fan base. And I wrote about it this past weekend on Pennsburg that you say Ricola has much better advanced stance stats and metrics than Chad Ruidal. And he's a natural left-handed defenseman. And yet again, tonight it looks like Ruidal's playing on the third pair with Justin Schultz instead of Ricola. 
I don't know. I'm, I mean, the question is you would have to ask Mike Sullivan this because it, his reasoning doesn't make a lot of sense. Chad Ruedel does have more NHL experience and he's older, but other than that, I couldn't really tell you. What do you think, Garrett? It looks really, from from the very limited sample size we have, it looks really, really wonky. And you can tell Ruedel just doesn't look comfortable on the left side. And Bob Barry on the AT&T Sportsnet broadcast brought, has brought it up at least once, probably if not multiple times, talking about these defensemen playing uh, out of position, not on their natural side. And like you said at the start, it's really been something that has all of a sudden, you know, captured the attention of the fan base. And to an extent, I agree. I, I, I don't understand what Mike Sullivan sees in Ruedel's game that's incredibly different from Ricola's game. And you even mentioned that his advanced Ricola's advanced metrics are are, are better than Ruedel's. It just it doesn't make any real logical sense that a left hand you wouldn't want a left-handed defenseman uh, on that third pair with with Schultz or, you know, whoever's uh, down there at the time being, uh, I personally don't get it, Jim. Uh, I, I, like I said, I think it looks kind of awkward and, and clumsy and sloppy at times. I don't think Ruedel's comfortable with it. He's not going to complain. You know, he's going to be that serviceable, serviceable depth guy who's going to do what's asked of him. I don't know if, if, if Yuso Ricola has been in the doghouse. Like you said, that's something that you'd have to ask Mike Sullivan, even if he'd give you a real honest answer to that. I'm not so sure. Uh, it's really interesting though. I, I'm not sure, you know, how much longer they're going to roll with this. Uh, maybe how, how it's however longer Brian Dumoulin's out. I would hope not. Cause like I said, it just, it doesn't look natural. He looks uncomfortable and uh, they've gotten past, they've gotten by with it so far, but I don't think it's a, Short term, short term, short term or long term answer for success, even on the bottom pair. Yeah, even on the bottom pair, it, like you said, it, it looks awkward. And since there's less right-handed defensemen that make it to the NHL level than left-handed, sometimes if you see a guy play on his offhand, it's going to be a left-handed guy getting pressed to play on the right side because they don't have enough right-handed guys. And I don't think right-handed players usually ever play on the left side on defense. So that's that's another reason that I think Ruedel is, is struggling a little bit. And I mean, the answer is that they see Chad Ruedel as their number seventh defenseman right now, and they just trust him a little more overall than Ricola. But the numbers that we have that are publicly out there just don't really show why they should trust him. But, I mean, that's the coach. The coach really isn't looking at a lot of the past, what has happened. He's trying to project what he's going to get out of them moving forward. So... I mean, I guess ultimately he feels like Ruedel is giving him the best chance to win the next game, and I think it's it's reasonable to say, like, to not understand how that happens, but that is where we're at right now. And, Jim, uh, that is where we're going to leave it, unless you have anything else you want to add before we conclude episode number 34 of the Pennsburg podcast. That sounds like a wonderful note to leave it on before another big weekend of hockey. All righty. Uh, don't forget, we are on... Uh, the Pennsburg Podcast is on every streaming podcasting platform of choice. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, as well as Pennsburg.com. Uh, follow along all season long through our Pennsburg Podcast Twitter account at Pennsburg Pod. Follow our main Twitter account at Pennsburg on Twitter and Pennsburg on Facebook as well. But for Jim Rixner, Hooks Orpic, I have been Garrett Behanna. Thank you again for listening to another edition of the Pennsburg Podcast, and we will see you next week.